Uh, well, hey, uh, good morning, church. Uh, my name's Chris Rivera. I'm the student director here at Mission Church Carville. That means that um, I have the privilege of working with, <laughs> scared me a little bit, I have the privilege of working with our middle schoolers and our high schoolers uh, Sunday mornings when we're here in classes, but then also on Wednesday nights. Uh, and so if you're a student and you're not plugged in right now, I would love to get to know you, take you and your family out for, for lunch or coffee any Sunday. I would love to meet you and hear your story and see where you're at. Uh, you know, I meet regularly with one of our elders, uh, Brad Harris, and he made sure to tell me to dress nice for this. Uh, so I left the tank tops and the shorts and the hat in the drawer today. Uh, but for the mustache, gospel freedom, baby, that's what I'm talking about. No, uh, I work with students. I work with students, right? They keep me honest. There's nothing you could say about the mustache that has not already been said, right? Uh, but without, without all out of the way, uh, it, it really is an honor to be with you here this morning. I love our church. I, I love where we're headed and I'm excited for the chance to, to interact with you from the pulpit. I, I've been praying, not that you would be impressed by me, uh, but that you would have confidence in the role that, that God has called me to play in, in the raising of your children. So I just, I've been praying that you would see that, right? Um, but yeah, uh, I'm going to get going. That's enough about me. I'll give you all my stories some other day, maybe. Uh, but I don't have to tell you about the guy that we're starting with today. You already know him. His name is Martin Luther King Jr., uh, during the height of the civil rights movement, you're familiar with his, his preaching and his teaching. He wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but he was a champion of racial equality. He protested segregation at the governmental level often, and eventually he was killed for those beliefs, right? Uh, and those issues that he went against, they were heavily political, uh, but he was really keen to note that the real root of those issues, the racial issues, was spiritual, he always dialed back to that. He wasn't afraid to lay the blame at the feet of the religious leaders of his day. Uh, in 1960, I think it was April, he was giving a, a press conference to NBC Media, and he said this. He said, I think one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the most shameful tragedies, is the 11 o'clock hour on a Sunday morning. It is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hour in Christian America. Any church that stands against integration, that has a segregated body, is standing against the Holy Spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and it fails to be a true witness. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not Christians unless you're diverse. He's, he's speaking against seg segregation here, but, but sadly, some of the main opponents to his teaching, to the civil rights movement, were the church leaders, right, who through their upbringing, uh, through their political ideology, through their uh, patriotic nationalism, had come to believe a false gospel. They had come to believe a false gospel. They had come to think that African Americans were second class in God's kingdom, and so therefore they were second class citizens of America. And that issue continues to this day. Don't hear me wrong. Uh, there are a ton of political factors that go into that, but ultimately, it's the result of sin. It, is the, it was the poisonous fruit of a false gospel that had been taught in the generations of the church. And so why do I bring that up? Because in our passage today, we're gonna to see Peter cause segregation in the church at Antioch. And Peter, it's, it's definitely influenced by his cultural bias, by his racial bias, but that's not the core issue. Paul is gonna combat it in the same way that uh, MLK would combat his leaders. Paul's gonna go right to the source. 
He's not going to smack his hands. He's going to look at his heart and say, Peter, you've forgotten the truth of the gospel. And to be clear, the, the Judaizers were unmistakably uh, ethnocentric in their rejection of the Gentiles, right? But Paul makes it clear that that discrimination, it's just the fruit. The, the root is the false gospel. The root is their misunderstanding of the word of God, their misunderstanding of the law. And so I bring up MLK because I think that we collectively are way too fast to believe that we would never be like the Judaizers, that we would we would never forget the gospel when it comes to division in our church. We would never let our, our political thinking or our theological background influence the purity of the gospel. We would never do that, right? But we are all way more susceptible to believing a false gospel than we like to think. Peter and even Barnabas, even Barnabas in this passage, both of them incredibly strong believers are examples of just how persuasive and destructive and influential a false gospel can be. Uh, we ended last week with Paul saying, he said, I'm not gonna compromise on the gospel for even a moment in order to protect the truth of salvation for, for the Galatians, right? And, and today he's gonna give us a very dramatic example of refusing to back away from the gospel. So let's read. If you're able, um, if you guys would stand for the reading of God's word. Um, we don't do this to be uh, fancy schmancy or to look cool. Uh, we do it just to give honor where honor is due. Uh, so this is from Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray, and I'll let you guys sit down. Uh, Lord, there is no other means by which anyone in this room can be saved other than Christ and Christ crucified. God, there is no level of moral obedience. There is no religious ladder. God, there is no standard of good or bad that we could ever rely on to be worthy in your eyes. And that includes me here now. And so God, I pray that you would just magnify your name. God, how great your love is. Like we sang, God, the, the greatest expression of your love in that moment when, when we were enemies and instead we became your children through what you did on the cross. And so, God, I pray that that would just be at the forefront of our minds this morning. Uh, be with me, God. Guard me from error. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. God, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, so, you know, I pray. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, so we have been talking about the tension between Jews and Gentiles in the book of Galatians, how the, the Judaizers were teaching that Gentiles were second-class believers, that if they really wanted to be believers, if they really wanted to be saved, well, they had to have the gospel 2.0. They had to have Jesus plus, right? They had to update their subscription. They needed the gospel plus all of the Jewish laws and regulations to be saved, and it was entirely false, and we've seen that the core problem of that is, is spiritual misinformation. It's a false gospel that's being believed and being preached. And it's, it's manifesting an ethnic divide, but it's a false gospel at the core. And if you remember Israel's history, that is a recurring issue in their story over and over again, that they're getting over-involved 
with unbelievers, with pagans in the promised land. They were intermarrying, they were intertwining religions, and it ends up creating blasphemy, blasphemy against God on a, on a national level. And, and their refusal to repent eventually leads to the exile, but God is faithful, God preserves a remnant. It was a time of God's severe judgment against their sin, but when they came back, the effects were really long-lasting. The Jewish people, they were so afraid of breaking God's laws. They were so scared of, of entering into another exile that they start to build this religious wall on top of God's word. They start adding hedges and additional rules, additional laws, their own laws on top of God's laws. And, and, and that original intention might've been to protect the word of God, but by the time Jesus hits the scene, the Pharisees are preaching justification by your works. And so it had been completely off track. Jesus spoke against that over and over and over again, more time than I have time to quote. But he, he battled the Pharisees, this justification of obeying the law. He battled that over and over again. But for generations, the, the Pharisees had been teaching that Gentiles were utterly rejected by God as unclean. They had been preaching for generations that their only hope of being a part of God's people was moral obedience to the law and your Jewish heritage. You had to be able to trace it back. And so when Paul hits the scene and he starts preaching to these Galatians that, hey, the Gentiles and Jews are on equal standing before God, that was controversial to say the least. The idea that the, the foot of the cross is level that by grace alone, through faith alone, even Gentiles could be accepted in the eyes of God. It was not the popular opinion. And so Parker showed us earlier in Galatians, that's actually part of Paul's defense of his message, right? The Judaizers, they were, they were accusing Paul, you're just preaching easy believism, Paul. This grace thing is going against moral obedience. You're doing this because you want people to approve of you. And Paul's rebuttal is, Dude, if I wanted people to accept me, this is the last thing that I would be preaching because the gospel is offensive. The true gospel is offensive. And it wasn't just offensive to their spiritual thoughts. It was offensive to their Jewish nationality, to their pride, to their political ideology. It was offensive to their sense of self-righteousness and their idea of how obedient they could be. It was offensive. So when Paul comes in and he says, you know, these Judaizers, they have the law entirely backwards. He'll go into, even, even in Abraham, before the law ever came, justification was by faith and God planned to save the Gentiles. That goes against everything the Judaizers had heard for their entire lives. And, and so Paul has been punching holes in their argument and defending his own message and his own ministry to the point that it's basically bulletproof before we get to this passage. Uh, here's just a, a little bit of what Paul has said so far. This is the case that he's built. First, he lays his own neck on the line. If, if me or anyone, even an angel of God comes and preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. That word has literally set them aside for the wrath of God. And then Paul said, if I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ because Christ's teachings are against the nature of man. Paul then, he says, I didn't even get this message from men. Me and the apostles didn't conspire. We didn't corroborate to spread a lie. Nobody dies for a lie, sidebar but they definitely didn't conspire. Paul says, I received this as a direct revelation from the risen Christ. 
And then he uses this testimony. He says, I was a Jew of the Jews. I knew the Old Testament law better than anybody. I was trying to destroy this movement. So how could you explain this change other than God choosing me to be an apostle before the ages began, a chosen instrument for the Gentiles? Jesus said, I'll show you what this man has to suffer on account of my name. And, and last week we looked at how Paul preaches for 14 years 14 years before he sits down and confirms his message with the apostles. And even then he goes to confirm it. And he's like, I don't even, I don't care if they're influential. Doesn't make a difference to me. God doesn't play favorites. Paul is confident in his message that by the way, him going to them is not looking for their approval. He went because they had been given the, the keys. He went because their confirmation was honoring God's plan, making sure that he, he wasn't running in vain. And if that wasn't enough evidence, in Paul's favor, he keeps going. He says, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John added nothing to my gospel message. And then they didn't just confirm his message, they confirmed his ministry. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. The word was that they perceived the grace given to Paul and they handed him ministry through the entire non-Jewish world. And then the nail in the coffin against their specific argument that you guys were making about gospel plus circumcision for your faith. The nail in the coffin, he says, dude, I brought Titus, a Greek, to Peter, James, and John, and they didn't have him circumcised. Paul is a fantastic debater. But why? Why is he beating this drum about his gospel message and his authority as an apostle. Why is he beating it as a drum over and over and over again? Not because he wants to seem smart, not because he wants to make them seem theologically stupid. He's doing it because there are lives. There are lives hanging on the line. This isn't just a secondary, non-essential disagreement between two theologians. This is not two dudes in ivory towers arguing about the millennium, right? This is a matter of life and death for the Galatians. It's, it's not just spiritual ideas, it's people's salvations. And so Paul will not compromise, not for even a moment, because as soon as they add anything, he says, if you add anything to Christ and Christ crucified, you have left the one true gospel and not just the message of the gospel, the person. You've left him. And in our text today, he's not going to compromise even if the person who is leading other people astray is one of Jesus's own inner three disciples. Paul's gospel, his, his apostleship is so authoritative that he rebukes Peter, Peter to his face and Peter accepts it. So let's look again. This is verse 11 and 12. Uh, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating, everybody say eating. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Uh, so first some context, Antioch was a central location to the early church. It was, it was a base of Paul's missionary work for many years. Uh, but notably, it was a place where the Jewish people and the Gentile people would mingle a lot. And so Peter, when, when he comes to Antioch, presumably to interact with the ministry going on, we need to notice that the situation is happening over a meal. 
It's really important. Why? Because that's a sensitive topic for Jewish people. It still is to this day. But it was a really sensitive topic specifically to Peter. Because if you read Acts 10, you'll see Peter, he's outside of Joppa. He's really hungry. And he receives a vision from the Lord on this rooftop. It's outside of Caesarea. And he falls into this trance and God brings down a sheet full of animals, crawling things, things that were considered unclean in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. He calls Peter, he says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, who is devoutly Jewish, has grown up rejecting these animals his entire life. So that should show you just how ingrained into the Jewish mindset moral obedience was. This dude was with Jesus, and God is speaking audibly to him. And and this is what it says in Acts 10. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, pause there. You should never say that if you hear the audible voice of God. I don't know how you call somebody Lord and then tell them no in the same sentence, even though I know that we do that every day. But this is, this is a real Peter thing to do. But look what he relies on. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times the thing was taken up at once to heaven. That is a Peter thing to do. He really has a knack for denying Jesus three times in a row. Uh, But we see in the passage, God isn't just talking about food. He's talking about this old covenant going away. He's talking about the veil being torn. It's Peter, you have to let go of this grip that you have on your religious upbringing, on your nationalism. Why? because God is about to include the Gentiles into the family. And what God has called clean, Peter, you will not treat it as common. You won't. So here in Galatians, uh, Peter is eating with the Gentiles and he's eating like the Gentiles. He's eating anything that was everything, really, that's considered unclean to the Jewish people. And, And so what happens? Well, the Judaizers come in, influential men, from Jerusalem. The text says they came from James. Uh, that doesn't mean that they represent James's beliefs. That means that they came from James's location, right? We know that because James just approved of Paul. Um, and so they come from Jerusalem and Peter draws back and separates himself from the Gentiles. And the word there in the Greek for draws back is literally to cower, to shrink away. A, a few commentaries I was reading, they, they tried to argue, man, Uh, Peter's just trying to be sensitive because he wants to preach the gospel to these guys. Peter's not really aware of how much he's hurting his his witness to the Gentiles here. But but I don't agree with that because Paul was there and Paul is a witness that Peter's doing this because he's afraid. He specifically mentions he's doing this because he's afraid of the Judaizers, the fear of man, the desire for their approval. Uh, The text also says that Peter uh, was condemned. That's not Uh, in the sense of Peter has lost his salvation or or that Peter is not accepted by God. Um, The term carries the sense of like legally, right? Factually caught in a falsehood. As the kids say, you're caught in 4K, right? He is red-handed in this moment. And in in this moment, Peter is compromising on the truth of the gospel by showing partiality to the Jewish Christians. His actions alone are communicating that if you want to be a first-class believer, if you want to be a true gospel follower, well, then you need to follow these Jewish laws about dietary restrictions, right? 
And in Galatians, they're arguing about circumcision, but whether it's that or the dietary laws, uh, you're slave to the same master, right? And so notice though, this is important. Peter doesn't say anything. Peter doesn't say a word. He doesn't get up and, oh God, listen everybody, you're justified by your works. He doesn't just verbally approve of the Judaizers. Hey, these guys, these guys coming through the door, what they're preaching, it's true. He doesn't do that. But by his actions, as somebody who is entrusted with the truth of the gospel, as somebody who was placed in a position of authority, he's communicating a false gospel. Uh, you know, Nine Marks, a really cool group. They, they do a lot of uh, amazing publications. They published a book by Mark Dever. It's about building a, a healthy church. And, and one of his points in the book is this. Uh, basically, anything that happens from the pulpit, anything that happens on stage is a teaching moment. Not just what you do, but what you don't do is teaching the congregation, all of it. If we don't pray about something, if we don't read God's word, if we don't sing, if you don't mention something in the sermon, that is also communicating your belief to the congregation, your belief in the sufficiency of God's word, the necessity of prayer, the sufficiency of, of Christ. There are sins of commission, but there's also sins of omission. And so what Peter does here, even though he's not getting up and speaking against the gospel, he is communicating a false gospel by omitting the Gentiles from this meal. As Paul would say in some of his other letters, Peter is ashamed of the gospel in this moment. He is cowering back instead of the boldness that living for the gospel requires. And we're gonna see in the next verse, the, the influence and the persuasiveness of your leader's actions can never be underestimated, ever. This is from 13, verse 13, back to the, to the main text. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says, literally every Jew in the room, they see Peter shrink back, and in a moment, they follow suit. All of them yield to the Judaizers' false gospel of Jesus plus for your righteousness and for your salvation. And I think it would have been dramatic enough for Paul to say, yeah, dude, every Jew in the room was being a hypocrite. That's a big deal. But the Galatians were Gentiles. So there's a chance that they could have just thought, oh, you know, they're Jews. That's what Jews do. They argue about the law. We would never do that. We're strong believers. And so Paul intentionally throws a name in there. He says, even Barnabas was led astray. If they didn't care about Peter because they never met him, they knew Barnabas. That would have really shaken the Galatians for them to realize that this false gospel is so persuasive that Barnabas started compromising it would have opened their eyes. Hey, maybe I'm being deceived as well. And so for, for some context, Barnabas is, is Paul's right-hand man at this point in his ministry. Uh, the first time you hear about Barnabas, it's Acts 4. Uh, we get to know that he's a Jew. He's not just a Jew, he's a Levite. So that's a big deal. And he sells what he has and he comes and he lays the money down at the feet of the apostles for the advancement of the gospel. That's where we, that's where we hear about him at first. But then it's Barnabas who can bridge the gap between the disciples and Paul. At Acts 9, they were afraid of Paul, rightly so. <laughs> who wouldn't be, right? Acts 9, 26 says this. And when he, that's Paul, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas 
took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. In the passage that we read last week, the apostles shake hands. They give the ministry to Paul and Barnabas. But even Barnabas is susceptible to this false gospel. And so by throwing that name in there, Paul is is drilling home, hey, this false gospel, it is messing up the real faith of real people. People's, who, who, their real eternities are in the balance. And to Paul, there is, there's nothing, there is nothing more dangerous for a believer than to start to believe that you have to add something on to what Jesus has done in your behalf if you're gonna be loved and accepted and approved of. And, and that's, a, that's a stern warning to us today to never think ourselves so mature, so woke, that we can't be fooled by a false gospel. It, it might not be outright false theology that you hear from a pulpit. It, it could be harmful Christian truisms, half-truths in, in, in social media. It could be a, a Christian celebrity. It could be a famous pastor. I love John Piper as much as the next pastor, but he's not perfect. It could be as simple as putting somebody like that on a pedestal and taking everything they say as fact. It's dangerous. We're all prone to forget it. And so students, that's, that's why it's so important that you take everything you hear, everything, and you filter it through the word of God, whether it's from school or from movies or your friends or songs or TikTok, it is only valuable for your life insofar as it affirms the truth of the gospel. Church, that's why I don't, regardless of the man that comes to preach from this pulpit, regardless, we would never want you to just take what you're hearing at face value. Please don't. We're sinful and broken just like you. You need to take what you hear and search the scriptures and be absolutely certain that it aligns with the truth of the gospel. Why? Because lives are on the line. Lives are on the line. Parker mentioned it before, but there, there are systems in place that if me or him or anybody would start preaching a false gospel from this stage, we'd be removed. We don't exclude ourselves from the discipline of the church. We always, we always want you to bring your questions, bring your concerns about our teaching to us. Keep us honest. Keep us walking in truth with the gospel. We need the diligence of the body. And again, that's, that's not us saying that if we miss one detail or misinterpret some fringe opinion one time, that you excommunicate us. Like, please, please don't do that, right? Uh, we're just echoing what Paul said. We mean that if, if anyone is consistently and unrepentantly preaching to you anything other than Christ and Christ crucified as the means for your salvation, reject it, swipe left. Don't listen to it. And this is the same for, for all of us. If, if our view of the gospel doesn't have room for us to be disciplined correctively, I don't think we've understood the gospel. I think we have greatly misunderstood the depths of our own depravity because even Barnabas and Peter could be led astray and so can we. So let's keep going. Paul is about to give us a fantastic picture of what this corrective discipline looks like. It's verse 14. It says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, why are you teaching these Gentiles that the Jewish dietary laws will make them acceptable to God? Why are you putting the burden of fulfilling the law on these people? You were with Christ. You knew that not you or anyone could ever be worthy of God's approval. Why are you putting it on them? And, and notice Paul is not, he's not just aiming at the surface level issues. It's not, hey, Peter, you're being kind of racist. It's, it's not, Peter, you're letting your nationality you're letting your upbringing guide your decisions. No, 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 no. Paul aims at his spirit. Peter, you have forgotten the truth of the gospel. Believing the lie inwardly is why his external steps are no longer aligned. And that's because the gospel is not just something you believe mentally. It's something you walk in externally. And Peter has forgotten what Christ taught by tearing the veil he has forgotten what God had just shown him in Acts 10. He's forgotten what Paul wrote. Um, I guess you can't forget it because Paul wrote it later, uh, but it's in Ephesians 2, 14. Paul says this, he says, for he, Jesus, Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing law of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He has in reference the Jews and the Gentiles there. Peter has forgotten the gospel. And without saying a word, he has led astray every other Jewish believer in the room. And Paul will use this as a springboard to completely correct the Judaizers, their, their misinterpretation of the Old Testament law. He'll go into kind of, we'll see that over the next couple of weeks, how he explains that the law was never designed to save us. But Paul includes this story about Peter to prove a point that this, this gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as contained in these scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, is the only way by which a man can be saved. And the Galatians need to know that. They need to know that this gospel is so true and so authoritative that Paul would not compromise on it, even if it was for Peter, even if it was for his right-hand man. You know, we mentioned last week in, in Matthew 18, there's some valuable instruction in there about church discipline. It's, uh, we talked about the witness of two or three people as you bring something before the church. And the context there is about a private conflict between two brothers, uh, presumably about some personal sin or error. Uh, and that process we saw was designed to be handled between the two brothers. And then if they can't, you bring in more people. And then if you can't, you bring in the church. But it's about a private conflict. And the implication there is that church discipline happens mostly at the congregational level. It happens as we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, keep each other accountable against following a false gospel so that the conflict can be settled before it ever reaches the need where elders or our pastor has to exact any kind of formative discipline. But in this situation that we're seeing in this text with Paul and Peter, this sin is not a private error. It's public. 
And it's not just public. It's a public act by an apostle. And it's not just a public act by an apostle. It's a public act by an apostle going directly against the means of salvation. And so Paul is taking a public route for discipline. Not to shame Peter, but because lives are on the line. He knew that if he let that go, the church in Antioch is gonna segregate into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. I don't know that we would be included if Paul had not done something here. And so this passage, it's, it's not an excuse to publicly shame each other every time we make a mistake, right? It, it, it's an example of how together we're supposed to recognize when the truth of the gospel is in jeopardy and keep each other accountable. We're not talking unessential uh, theologies. We're not talking fringe opinions about confusing passages. We're seeing here that regardless of who or what is preaching a false gospel of salvation that we cannot compromise on it for even a moment. It's not Paul shaming Peter. How do we know that? He's not trying to say he's better. In last week's passage, he just said that God doesn't play favorites. He just said that God gave him the ministry and Paul the ministry. They're on the equal playing field. He just shook hands with Peter in the name of the Lord. He's not embarrassing him. They're brothers in ministry. They have obvious love and respect for each other. This is Paul seeing his brother in Christ being led astray and leading other people astray with him and intervening out of love because salvation is on the line. It, it's a loving thing that Paul is doing here. And it's the exact thing that he's trying to do for the Galatians. Paul was rightfully upset with them. Later on, we saw that the Galatians, they, they saw Christ crucified in the, in the flesh with their eyes. He was publicly portrayed to them as crucified. And so Paul is rightly upset. But it, in Galatians 6, in the first verse, he said, with this error in view, believing the Judaizers, with that error in view, he says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And what that means for the Galatians is that there is still hope for restoration to the truth of the gospel. By, by including this story about Peter, Paul is definitely proving his point. He's definitely proving his point to, to the Judaizers, right? That, that his gospel is authoritative. But he's also showing that even though these Gentiles, these, these Galatians, that they've fallen prey to this false gospel, they can still repent and they can still believe in Jesus. Peter, one of Jesus's inner three, fell victim to the exact same lie. And a mistake from Peter and even Barnabas can be forgiven. And that means that anybody can be restored in a spirit of gentleness to the true gospel. And so Paul is reiterating to the Galatians, there is grace, there is forgiveness if you will repent. You cannot undo your circumcision, but you can stop trusting in the works of your hands to save your soul. You can, you can repent. And the same thing goes for us. If, if we're living and breathing this morning, you can remember that if you add anything to the gospel that you are leaving the person and work of Jesus Christ behind, that same grace is available to everybody in this room. 
None of us are above making that mistake. Every single one of us this week have believed a false gospel at some point this morning. I believed the false gospel before I brushed my teeth. We all have, whether it was something you did or something you didn't do, whether you acted out against the gospel or shrunk back from the gospel, we all in the weakness of our flesh turn so quickly to another gospel. Our factory default setting is to look at the works of our own hands. But there is hope again this morning for us to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, for our righteousness before God. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and, and your story looks a little bit like the Judaizers, there's still hope for you. Maybe you came by your false gospel, honestly. Maybe it was all you ever heard in your upbringing. Maybe it was all you ever heard in your home. It could have been what you heard preached from a previous church. It could be what you've heard from your culture your entire life. You could have come by it honestly, thinking that I have to be good enough to earn God's love, that it's up to me to add on to what Christ has done. Christ was the alley-oop, and now I'm the moments the ball's in my court, and I have to flush it home by my obedience. You could be believing that honestly, because if you have been led astray, but there's hope for you that you can stop trusting in your own obedience to make you worthy before a righteous and holy God. You can admit, you can be honest with yourself and admit that any good work you could ever do is rags before a perfect God. You can believe in your heart and you can confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can put your faith in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. You can believe that Christ is the way and the truth and the life. If you've never done that, please stay. We will give up all of spring break for all I care so that you would come to know the truth about the gospel. And if you're here this morning and, and your story is more like the Galatians, there's also hope for you. If you're already a believer who has been stuck in this season of, of trusting the works of your own hands, of thinking that there's something else, there's something extra that you have to be doing for God to actually love you, you can repent again and you can fall back on the cross again. Like the song says, confess it. Your heart is prone to wander and ask God to restore you to the truth. You can let the truth of God's word, like a fetter, like a fetter, bind your wandering heart to him. And whatever false gospel you may have believed this morning, you can, you can lay it at the foot of the cross. And then as you, as you go today and this week, wherever you travel to, if you're staying in town, that's just as awesome. Wherever you go, by the power of the Holy Spirit, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Meditate on Christ, on his sacrifice. Pray that you wouldn't enter into temptation, but if you do, praise, praise God. Pray that you would not compromise on the truth for even a moment. Why? Because the eternity of everyone you will meet this week, every soul that you will interact with this week, your coworkers, your community, your children, all of them, 
hang on the truth of the gospel being preserved by the power of God through the people of God. So let's pray. Let's pray for the protection of the gospel in our lives this week. Um, Father, one of the most amazing things apart from your son that you have given us is each other. God, if Paul and Peter are any kind of example, we all, we all need to be reminded of the gospel. And we all need men and women and friends that we trust, not just to to recognize when we're believing a lie, but to boldly correct us. God, there are so many things in, in my own life that I could have entirely avoided. False gospels that I, I believed in, that I was led astray by. And those things could have been avoided if a brother or a sister, a friend, reminded me of the gospel. And God, I just, I just pray. I pray for this body, God, they will find other truths, supposed truths, not that there is any other gospel, but they will hear them this week. Their kids will hear them this week. And God, I pray in those moments, I pray that in those moments, as they meditate on you, that the expression of your love in the death of your son, that they would remember that the same grace that saved them is the same grace that will sustain them for the rest of their life. Jesus, thank you for that grace. Thank you. In your name we pray, amen.